We will be reading this evening from 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 through 12. Our sermon text is verse 8 and 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, looking particularly at verse 8 and 9. As we do so, we recall that the Apostle Peter is addressing those who he considers primarily as pilgrims in the wilderness with the hopes of encouraging them, with the hopes of diagnosing what life is like in the present. What should pilgrims expect? What's life like? Who are we? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, by a word, uh, you created all things, and now by a word, you redeem and you recreate those who are once spiritually dead. So, Father, we ask now that you would bless the teaching of this word, that you would encourage us, you would lift us up, you'd teach us something about who we are in Christ Jesus and where our faith and its object is. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, is a song whose essence and core expresses the limits of human achievement in the face of trial and obstacle. It's not just any achievement, but achievement that looks at and grasps and lays hold of one's own way. He says, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and Now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing. I did it my way. So he looks at all the troubles and all the lots and the the poorly cast die that come our way and he he rejoices in his own success and his own design. Did you know that this song is the most commonly played song at funerals? I think it's apt. I think it expresses at core the reality that we all want to do life our way. 
to rejoice in what we've done, the way we've done it, with the objective fact verified through our experience that we can look at, that we can, we can analyze and see everything that's happened in our life and say, I did it. I did it my way. I'm pleased with it. I'm happy with it. I'm content with it. We want to be the masters of our own design. You can look at the evidence of your life and rejoice in the design you had and say, I've done it. I've made it. I've accomplished it all. I took the blows. I did it my way. It looks at suffering, at one's overcoming of it, as tangible evidence. It believes that evidence. It puts its faith and trust in that tangible evidence of one's success through trial, and it takes pride and rejoices in it. I think there's something inexpressibly human about that, isn't there? That impulse. It's hard to believe something about life in a sin-cursed world, but if you can believe and rejoice in anything about the design that you've had, Believe and rejoice that you did it the way you wanted it. It's a big temptation for pilgrims. When you look at the evidence of your life and say, boom, there it is. We've made it. And it made it all worth it. Well, I think our passage today teaches something quite different about the design of life and particularly of faith and its object. It teaches us that the locus of our faith is not some tangible, measurable object we can see and touch and observe as we look back at the evidence of our life. But rather, it teaches that faith is jubilant because its locus is in Jesus Christ, who is in heaven and is in in His promised return, and in the counterintuitive reality that we presently possess salvation by faith in Him despite the fact that we cannot see Him. And I want to discover that in three ways this evening. First is an intangible design. Second is an intangible joy. And the third is tangible salvation. So an intangible design, intangible joy, tangible salvation. So first, Peter opens verse 8a saying, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Now, I want to relate this to a theory called object permanence. This is a theory within child development psychology that espouses the idea that young infant children don't have, are not able to conceive of the fact that though they cannot see you, you still exist. So for a very young infant, when its mother walks out of the room, it's very disturbing and unsettling because it doesn't believe that the mother continues to exist despite the fact that it cannot see the mother. Now there's something that's relatable about that to the nature of the kingdom of God in this present evil age. And our experience of the kingdom of God and our experience of faith because Christ is absent. Reality is oftentimes it's quite different because he is not here and we cannot see him and we cannot touch him. And this this problem, the difficulty of this, corresponds to our very nature as it's expressed in the concept of object, object permanence theory. The world was made to be known, and you were made to know it. The world was made to be seen, to be touched, to be felt, to be heard, to be be smelled, to be thought about. And you were made to reason. So this adds a level of complexity to the life of faith in Christ, because you cannot now see Him. 
that creates a problem for that intimate human reality, that we are embodied beings that are highly tied to and dependent on our sense experience and our reason for the things that we know and the things that we're confident in. But what happens that you, when you believe in something that is extra-rational and extra-empirical, that goes beyond the limits of reason and goes beyond the limits of experience, that goes beyond the laws of the scientific method, it goes beyond the systems that correspond so very much to our nature, what happens when we believe in, lo- believe in something and love something that we cannot see? We know things through sense experience. We believe truths based on sense experience. We know things through reason, and we believe things based upon reason. Now, that's not to say that faith is irrational. That's not to say that faith is irrempirical, that it contradicts faith, that, that faith contradicts reason or experience. It is to say that I cannot prove on the basis of my love and belief on the uh, belief in Christ the, through the normal analytical laws of experience and rational rationalism. These are both handmaidens to faith, of course, and faith is not opposed to reason, but it is to say that faith is extra-rational and extra-empirical. The query for knowing Christ and believing in Him and placing our confidence in Him goes beyond what these things can prove with, the, with their analytical system. I cannot prove why I have faith and love for Christ in the same way that I can prove uh, the, the, the reality of gravity when I drop a pen and it falls to the floor. So faith and love in that which we cannot see and which we cannot touch naturally goes against the grain of our created impulse. It is, not, it is not natural to us. It does not come easy. It makes faith really, really difficult. And I do believe that to be true. Faith is not easy. And I think Peter openly recognizes this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. He's conceding the point that faith is difficult, that this goes against our natural impulse to rely on what we can see, to rely only on what we can reason. Peter recognizes the reality that faith in Christ by the nature of where he is and we are has a design that goes against our natural inclination as sensing and as thinking beings. Life and the path to salvation has a design that requires us to place our faith and our trust in that which is intangible, that which we cannot see and touch to verify its reality. And I think it's important to pick up on this. When you meet somebody who's suffering, one of the best and kindest things that you can do for them is to listen to their plight and recognize it and say to them, I know what you're going through, I see what you're going through. So when your parents come to you in the midst of a challenging season in life and they say, I know that the things that you're enduring are incredibly difficult and how painful they are. It's incredibly encouraging to us to have someone who can relate to that experience, who can recognize that this is indeed difficult. 
And I think that's, that's why I'm spending time developing this theme, that this is the design of how things are because of our very nature as body, bodily thinking rational beings. It has to be this way. And so Peter is confessing to the church, I know that you didn't see him as I did. I know that we do not now see him and that that's hard, but you believe in him. It validates the challenge of faith in him whom we have not seen. And that in its own right is comforting to the people of God as they go about this life as pilgrims who suffer. It's hard to believe that Christ is seated on the throne when we have worn out wineskins, when we do face trials and we do wonder why we are unfavored in culture and why we meet the trials and the plights that we do. Even the battle against sin is hard when we don't see him. We give in, as it were, to that impulse for object permanence, forgetting that not only is he seated on the throne witnessing all that we do, but forgetting what awaits us. If you've ever heard of the experiment they've done with young children, they'll place maybe a marshmallow on the table and they'll, leave the, they'll, they'll, they'll tell the children, I'm going to leave this room for three minutes and if when I come back this marshmallow is still on the table, you can have another one. And it would be much easier for that child if the parent remained it or, or the person running the test stayed there. But suddenly when that parent is gone, it's much more difficult. And yet this is his design. This is his ordering of life for pilgrims. And we do believe in him counter to our natural impulses. And it's right for us at this point to question, well, why, why do we believe well, because his Holy Spirit sent down from heaven to do the bidding of Christ works it in our heart through the preaching of the gospel. And he confirms it by the sacraments. And so my exhortation to you regarding this is, is not to wail and not to grow weary and not to grow tired and discontent in this design and your desire to see Christ. That's a good and natural impulse that you have. But to recognize it for what it is. It is a design for a season while we are apart from Him. And so despite our nature, we love and we believe because His spirit of power and grace is sent from that intangible realm from above. Now recognizing this reality allows us to endure this design and accept it as part and parcel of His plan. We might not have it His way, we might not have it our way, rather, but we do have it his way. Now we need to come to terms with the fact, though, that Peter says, well, actually, quite counterintuitively, quite counterimpulsively, this faith in him whom we do not see leads us to great joy. He says, in this you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory in 8b. Why call joy intangible? Well, if our hope is in something that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, that we cannot observe through the normative sense experience uh, and, and rationalism that we use to calculate what we know in everyday life, and that conforms to the scientific method, how can we be joyful? That's a good question to ask. Because joy is something that's characterized by confidence. I don't have inward delight and overflowing contentment in something that I'm not actually confident in. 
And rather, actually, a, a lack of confidence oftentimes leads us to a sense of anxiety, depression, doubt, restlessness. I'll give you an example. I love uh, the, the moments before, I loved, I should say, the moments before uh, a soccer game when I was in college. As I got ready to play the other team, I would size them up. I would take them in. How big are they? How tall are they? How fast are they? What does their touch look like on and off the ball? And if they looked like a good team, the sense of joy that I got from playing that game and anticipating that game diminished because I wasn't confident that we were going to play well and contend with them. So a lack of confidence actually leads to a great deal of anxiety. So the question is, how can we be confidently joyful if the claims of faith in Christ are a step beyond what sense experience and reason can verify to be true? Well, because faith, as our confessions, or as Scripture so aptly states, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And as our confession says, it is a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And that it goes on to say that's confirmed by the sacraments. So that's how we can be joyful. Not because it comes from us. Not because it corresponds to the same test that I use when I verify gravity. But because it comes from above. Comes from the operation of the Spirit. Him who does not belong to this realm of sin and death but to the realm of the everlasting kingdom. And what are we joyful about, people of God? What is it that we are certain of? What is the in this that we greatly rejoice in? Well, faith's object is Christ, seated on his throne, even though we do not see him. And that faith, That hope, that certainty, along with its object, does not reside in this realm. That's why we can rejoice despite the reality that we don't see Him. Joy itself, confidence itself, is intangible because it does not belong to this realm, but is brought into this realm and brought to pass by the powers of the age that are to come. So not only is joy counterintuitive because it does not come from here, Not only is it intangible because it is not made up of the stuff of this world, but it is also inexpressible and filled with glory. It's inexpressible in that we can't explain it. When you look at the situations and the circumstances of your life and of the lives of the people of God that have suffered in ages past, the joy that they have cannot be explained by their sense experience, by what they have. And I think it's this very reason that actually the saying is true, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Because people look at what they endure and they observe it and they say, how can they be so joyful? Joy itself is foreign. It is incapable of being explained. And I think of all the things that we oftentimes Rejoice in maybe a a new toy, a new car, a new dog. How often does our joy in these things fade quickly from us or become normal and mundane? 
How often do these joys actually contradict reason and sense experience? How often are they detrimental to us? Joys in this world are affected and can be corrupted and shaken. Joys in this world are exhaustible. But that joy in Christ is inexpressible and inexhaustible. It's filled with the glory of the age that is to come and it does not fade because it's made up of the DNA of the new heavens and the new earth. It can't be affected. That kingdom is inexhaustible and so are its resources that are pouring out into the people of God here and now. So this world's joy, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, is dusty and will burn up with fire. So the joy that we have cannot be hindered. It cannot be altered. It cannot be shorn or worn out or affected by the dismal reality of suffering in this present evil age and by the reality that we cannot see him in whom we have believed. And I think there's actually an implicit imperative there, isn't there? Are we finding ourselves lowly and cast down? Have we, like the church in Revelation, forgotten our first love? The reality is that we have every reason to have joy and rejoice in Christ and be a people that are characterized by joy that cannot be explained or defined. We have every reason to rejoice in Christ and be a people characterized by joy and filled with glory that is overflowing from the radiant life of the kingdom that is to come. Joy defies our outward circumstances and yet we are and should be joyful because it cannot be shaken. And all of this leads us then to have a very tangible, tangible possession of our salvation. Faith has a goal. It has an end product and a result that it it inevitably achieves. Though we cannot see Christ and though we cannot explain comprehensively on the basis of our circumstances why we have incontainable and inexpressible joy, we do have a very tangible and real salvation that is ongoing. So there's a past, a present, and a future tense of our salvation. It is incomplete to leave out the present and future tense. It's proper for us to say that I have been saved by Christ. It's also proper for us to say I am being saved by Christ as I am continually being delivered over from my bondage to sin. And it's also proper for us to say I will be saved when Christ returns and comes riding down on the clouds with glory to judge the living and the dead and and meet his elect in the clouds and raise the dead from their graves. And so we trust and we believe with heartfelt assurance leaning into the reality of all three of these aspects. Faith obtains its goal as a progressive unraveling of our full and complete deliverance, both at Calvary, in the present day-to-day experience of our life, and in the future. And because of what faith and joy is, though those are intangibly rooted, salvation isn't. It's sure, it's total, It's confident. So you can actually wrap your hand around it, as it were. 
And we believe joyfully with confidence in our salvation in spite of what we cannot make sense of in our present circumstances. We can believe this way because the object of these things is categorically removed from the explanations that this world can offer. And so you can actually have assurance of salvation. You can actually have assurance of your salvation. One author states, the Bible does not say being satisfied about our faith, we have peace with God, but being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And between these two things, there is a wonderful difference. Faith's object isn't our work or the measure of our faith. It's joyful not because of how much faith we perceive ourselves to have. It's joyful and it's effective because its object is in him whom we have not seen or touched and in him who we still do not see or touch. So you may feel far from him, but by faith the size of a mustard seed, he is never far from you. And you might say, my faith is weak. Well, do we have a show for you? This passage is a call to more faith. You want something verifiable? You want something tangible? I'll tell you the most tangible thing there is. Your salvation in Christ. And so if the gospel is nothing to you too, you've got your feelings right, and satisfaction in your faith right, it is no gospel at all for the sinner. The object of faith is Jesus, not our own faith. So we may be tempted to rejoice in our own plan. We may be tempted to rejoice in our own way or to look to another in the narratives that we can rationalize or the narratives proven according to the laws of the scientific method. We may look to something more tangible so that we can say, I did it my way. We may be tempted to rejoice even in our own faith for something tangible. But faith it rejoices inexpressibly in his design. And believe me, you, there's something far better than rejoicing in our own way and rejoicing in our own faith. That's rejoicing with a tangible sense of our salvation, knowing that one day we will see Christ in his body and hear him speak with his own voice, that we will touch him with our own hands, that we will uh, dine with him as, at his own table. There's something far better than rejoicing in our own way or our own faith. It's rejoicing in the reality that we will see Christ and in the, 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 the surety of his accomplished work at Calvary and that he is now seated on his throne and that we will go to him, that we will look upon him with eyes and glorified bodies. You want to talk about sense experience? That's something worth boasting in. And that's something worth being confidently joyful in all the days of our life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are indeed thankful to you for the promise that your spirit does lift us up from the realities of this age 
to behold Christ in his glory seated on his throne and to hope in him and in his resurrection. We ask that that tangible sense of our salvation would not, not just pervade our hearts today, but would go with us as we go out into this week. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.